0: Greetings, humans. You have entered the Command
1: Zone, your
0: destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay.
1: How's it, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Command Zone. I'm your host, Josh Lee Kwai. And I'm DJ. DJ is back. Uh, Substitute teaching, as we're saying. I kind of like that because you are in education.
2: That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So if you don't know, DJ is is from the YouTube channel Jumbo Commander. If you haven't checked it out, you should go on over
2: You wanna explain your channel really quick? Absolutely, we're focused on Commander and my favorite thing to do is to make Commander decks. So I have tons of deck techs on the channel and I'm gonna be starting in on the M19 Commanders. There's so many great ones, so I'm really excited to break those down and make really interesting and unique decks.
1: Yeah, you do have a ton of deck techs and DJ has some really good thoughts on building decks. In fact, I think at the time of this video, Vivictus Asmati is your most recent one.
2: That's right, yeah. All
1: right, so go down over there and check that out. Today on this show, We are going to be talking about powering up your deck or tuning up your deck. You know, things happen. New sets come out. That's kind of the biggest thing that happens.
2: Oh, yeah, totally.
1: So new cards, they hit the scene. They start going into people's decks. It starts to change your play group and the decks people are playing. Or a new commander comes out, and they build an entirely new deck. And that strategy is something that you haven't faced before, and your decks start maybe underperforming or not being good against those. And... We find ourselves, you know, needing
2: to tune them up. I find this happens a lot with the release of new commander sets, the release of reprint sets like modern masters, iconic masters, things like that where people get access to new cards and suddenly your metagame shifts a little bit and you got to tune your deck up. You got to bring that power level up to the rest of the table.
1: But then it can get into a sticky situation because you're changing your deck. But how do you know that you're making it better and not worse?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because definitely
1: I've made some tune ups that, uh, actually ended up being tuned down so that's not what you want to do so that's what we're talking about today before we get into all that we want to give some shout outs to our sponsors cardkingdomcom slash command zone if you use that affiliate link when you order your magic products, your singles anything at all you really are supporting this show you're supporting game nights and all of our content and also we've got a promotion going on a lot of people have been asking how do i unlock that game nights logo background on the life linker app Right now, if you use our affiliate link, again, command or sorry, CardKingdom.com slash CommandZone, for any order before August 1st, between now and August 1st, if you use that affiliate link, when they send you your cards or your product or whatever you ordered, in that package will come a code. And if you use that code in Lifelinker, you will unlock the Game Night's background. That's the only way to get it, again, until August 1st. So use that affiliate link, unlock the, the Game Night's uh, background. While you're there, at Card Kingdom, you should also check out Ultra Pro products or anywhere at your LGS, whatever they are. Every, available everywhere in the world, they make Eclipse sleeves now available in a hundred packs. They make Relic Tokens. I actually um, went down to the LGS in LA recently, and they had Relic Tokens in stock for like the first time in like months. They're hard that's to find. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you seen these things? Have you used them? No, yet?
2: I have never seen them.
1: Not in person. No, I was giving them out in GP Vegas. You must have missed me. Um, oh they are these really sweet, uh, sort of plastic, like thick high quality tokens that kind of go on top of magic tokens and they're actually they have the license agreement with wizards so they actually have Tarmogoyf ones and they have like a Nickel Bolas emblem one I think and they have like you know the actual art from magic so they're really sweet um, something to check out from Ultra Pro and the final way to support the show is directly if you go to patreon.com slash command zone in fact we come call out one lucky patron every single episode and this episode is dedicated to Lynn, Lynn Laboon. Laboon Lynn you rock. Okay. Let's go into our main topic here. Um,
2: Let's talk about powering up your deck. Yeah. So you got in really well. <laughs> I, think, I think, though, that we have to have a little bit of a disclaimer first. Okay. We, have to, we have to talk about some... Yeah, disclaimer.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. Disclaimer. We haven't done that one in a while. Okay, go ahead.
2: We actually have to talk a little bit about definitions. We need to have the right vocabulary going into this conversation because we need to know what context we're talking about. So I'm going to be listing a few different categories of deck types. And that'll give us some context for talking about them and for evaluating cards in your specific deck.
1: They're kind of like power level tiers almost. Exactly. This is going to be general, right? Where it's not going to be like exactly on the bullseye. It's just going to give you a general idea of what range we're talking about.
2: That's why we're talking about it in terms of a disclaimer. It's mostly just language so that we can understand each other. And when we're talking about a power level of deck, you guys can kind of understand and be like, oh, that's my deck or that's the deck I want to get to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So along this continuum of power level, we have at the bottom, Jank. Then we have moving up the levels casual, then focused, then optimized, and finally competitive at the top. Now, this is sort of a continuum of power level in commander decks. This doesn't mean that competitive is the best and Jank is bad. They're all good in their own way. They all have value. Are you? Why they are all, you laughing, Josh?
1: They all Jank
2: decks. Here's the thing. You guys might actually get offended when I describe a jank deck, but jank decks can be awesome and can be good too. You're
1: trying so hard not to offend
2: anybody. Good luck with that, by the way. Listen. They're all good dogs, Josh. <laughs> you can tell okay? that, all can tell of
1: that them. DJ is new to this because he's trying to make everybody happy. No, I, I legitimately
2: have <laughs> jank decks that I love.
1: I'm not new to podcasting, not content creation. Listen, here's what I would say. Um, I agree that they all have value, right? and everybody, we say this all the time on the show, do what you find fun, and everybody's fun is unique to them, and, and they should do those things. That doesn't mean that jank decks are the equivalent of competitive decks as far as power level. Oh yeah,
2: they shouldn't really play together. <laughs> right, so <laughs> yeah.
1: competitive, I think the good way to think about this is we've talked about a 1 to 10 scale uh, when you sit down and just getting, taking the temperature at the table and saying like okay, so what's everybody playing on a scale of 1 to 10 about what it is, and I would say that this, you know, this is something DJ came up with, but you know, you could think of Jank as like one and two, casual three and four, focus five and six, optimized seven eight, competitive nine ten. That's gonna be in the ballpark. We can quibble, and everybody always asks, "Well, what exactly is?" It's not about finding the exact. It's just yeah. about getting in the ballpark because I don't want a ten against a two. Ten against a seven is okay.
2: And honestly, we could change all these words, change all the numbers, whatever. We're telling you this because it opens up the conversation about yes. these styles of decks, these power levels.
1: It's like you said. It makes communication possible. So let's, so let's describe a few of them, Yeah, right? let's let's go through each one and, Absolutely. and, and sort of describe them. So, so
2: first off, we have Jank. Okay, Jank can include Vorthos decks. Jank doesn't mean bad inherently. No, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah.
1: It just... Okay, go. Keep going. Let's
2: keep going. Cuz examples more examples those people will are like, help. hey, you just called my deck Jake. <laughs> it doesn't but here's the thing. He's not you to pri- you now. prioritize you prioritize flavor over Winning
1: power level over
2: power level over card energy. Yes, you you prioritize flavor yep. at the top, right? Which means you have your own set of motivations. So yeah, uh, got <laughs> yeah, Vorthos. I like I like chair themed decks chair chair themed decks Have you played against one of those? No, but it's a, there is a chair themed deck out there that has a large following Which is why I wrote it down sweet. Yeah, people are gonna be like I need the sweet new chair tech Okay, uh, what else we have decks based off of a converted mana cost uh, underrepresented tribes, yep. that bear tribe. You know, you yep. gotta have that bear tribe.
1: I know Ethan Fleischer <laughs> from Wizards of the Coast has a bear uh, deck, and it's just like all the grizzly bears. Like it's it's not a good deck, but he's just, you know, yeah, it's a it's a janky. but he
2: he loves it, right? Yeah, exactly. it's great. Uh, what else? We have decks that you sometimes create. You go into the bulk bins at your local game store, and you're like, I'm gonna make a commander deck. Or maybe you just go into your own collection, just start pulling cards out and you're gonna make a commander deck out of all of those. Cards. I
1: actually think that that's probably the most common is just like, I just had these cards. And so I made this commander deck and it, it's sort of like, I didn't try super hard at it. It's not like I just threw random cards in. I chose cards that I th- were in those colors that I thought were good, but I didn't like go to cardkingdom.com and order specific things. I didn't go to EDH rec. I just said, oh, this is a card in black. It seems like a good card. Black's in the color, I'm putting it in there. Yeah, that's definitely something you run into. Um All right, the next level is casual. So starting this is sort of starting at the precons. Would you what would you say? Cuz I always thought the precons were like a 4 or 5 on the power scale.
2: Okay, I'm more thinking of them as a 3 or 4. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said 4 or 5. I can think they could be a 3 or a 4. I mean the new some of them in there are three.
1: The old part precons are <laughs> closer to threes and the new ones are closer to fives. I think like the four color ones, Brea... Yidris attracts it right out of the box. We're like fives.
2: Yeah, you're, you're right. They've been doing a much better job of actually making sure that the cards have a lot of synergy together. And so these pre-cons are going to have a range as well. But some of the old ones, uh, do you remember? Oh, some the, of them are just so uh, all over the place. The Kalia so. deck. Oh, Kalia yeah. is awesome, Yet the precon deck was so hard to play. Well,
1: it's split between so many different. It's not focused. We'll talk about this later, but yeah. yeah. Um, although Cassius did beat us all with it in last year's Commander <laughs> anthology uh, game nights, so who knows? Um, so cons- it, it's it's um, starting at the precons, encompassing many different generals and strategies. You make concessions, you know, due to the price of cards, maybe, or just the availability of you to get them. Like if you live in a small town, or or. You know, we live in Los Angeles. We can literally get any card, but that's not the true of everywhere. everybody in every place, right? It can be just hard to get certain cards. Uh, A less powerful card might be chosen over a more powerful one because, you know, it's fun, quote unquote. Yeah. You find it fun. Um, But in general, these these decks sort of, they flirt with the idea of having a game plan or strategy, but they tend to, or they're often kind of unfocused.
2: And that seems to be the pre-con problem sometimes, right? Where it's like, this is actually a collection of pretty good cards. Like I play these in commander, uh, but it's a little bit unfocused and you really need to upgrade it to get it to move to the next level.
1: If you think of the pre-cons from last year, the Inala deck, you know, it had a bunch of wizards in it for Anala. But then there was Kess was also in the deck and they wanted to give you some cards if you wanted to build that Kess deck. So you had like 11 cards that mm-hmm. were on the Kess plan, not the Anala plan. And there was a little bit of overlap, but that tends to be, I think where casual decks sort of all is like, they got a plan, but they also kind of thought, oh, these other two little plans might be fun too. And so they're just meandering a little bit sometimes towards like a, a thing that the whole deck doesn't want to do.
2: I also think that sometimes if you're going hyper budget, it might be very well thought out and there's a lot of care put into your deck but the power level might be more on the casual side just because of the restriction you put on yourself in terms of budget.
1: Although I would say, you know, I've played a lot with um, the Commander's Brew guys, well, Andy Hull specifically, and within a budget, you can definitely get to the next category totally. for sure totally. um, by just making smart choices. So the next category.
2: The next category is Focused. And this deck is designed to be well-balanced and contain a game plan. And really, it's well thought out. Uh, one thing I want to say is that it actually contains most of the effects you want. It might not actually contain every card you want, but you know the effect you want in that situation. I think it has
1: most of the cards you want, right?
2: One thing that I've that I seen a lot of is, well, I'm playing Declaration in Stone instead of Path to Exile, because Path to Exile's $10. Is and that $10 leads to the next now? Thing. I don't know, it's all over the place. I think it's like three, but okay. Is yeah. it only three?
1: I don't know, I could be wrong.
2: We're gonna, we're gonna, we should make a bet on this.
1: Craig, put it up on screen right now what Card Kingdom's got it at. Okay, I, one of us won and one of us lost. Who knows? <laughs> OK, go
2: ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, but basically winning is a focus, but not really at the expense of playing all the cards you want or even the general you want. And so you'll make a lot of concessions because it's something you want to do. You want to play that general. You want to play that card. You do want to win, but it's not that important uh, to you.
1: Yeah, I think like winning is a focus, but it's not necessarily the focus. And that's a really good point, I think, about it's playing the generals that you sort of know aren't that great. Not even like not tier one, not, you know, they might be tier four or five, but you like the effect. It's cool. And you're going to build a very, you know, focused version of that deck, but the best that deck can get is not that great.
2: Do you have a commander deck like that? Um,
1: I mean, my Tim deck. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Like it's... (laughs) It's not a great strategy, honestly. It works sometimes, don't get me wrong, but it's very fragile and like, but I'm like, whatever. I just want to tap creatures and do one damage to things. Yeah,
2: I have a, I have a deck that has all 15 Theros gods and is a little bit of an Enchantress theme. And literally, I'll just play gods over and over again. And I'm looking down at the table. I'm like, none of them are turned on. This is...
1: <laughs> <laughs> Stuff's happening, but I don't I, know. I've planned this out
2: so carefully, and none of them are creatures yet. They can't attack. But then once, like, one of them starts getting turned on, they all start getting turned on, and it becomes very powerful. And uh, But you know what? I'm not going to change it or anything. I'm going to play my deck the way it's supposed to play.
1: Right, because that's a focused version of that idea, even though that idea, like, the best it can reach is not in 9 or 10, right? Exactly. Not all ideas can get to competitive. Okay, the next one is Optimize. And I'd say... N- most of my decks fall in the optimize there're sevens and eights. I think I think that's probably fair, not all uh, but I would say that's where most of my decks fall and this is where the commander choices kind of become a little limited. You're you know you won't play um, some of the weaker stuff. you want to build a powerful deck. you are trying to win. It's not the only consideration, but it's definitely, like, one of the top considerations. Whenever you're building, you're thinking, like, does this help my deck become more powerful and win more? That doesn't mean you never put in a card that's, like, I want to I try this out. It looks fun. It just means, like, that's the exception by far most of your cards are trying to win. Um, it heavily considers things like mana curve, mana base, typical lines of play, power level of cards... I put this, often decks are kept at this level purposely and they eschew cards and interactions that break the social contract. That's so, a great point. Yeah. yeah. So, and and this is where I put my decks and I've played against you and I know a lot of your decks sit here too, which is very powerful, but we're not putting in mass land destruction. We don't tutor. We're not, our plan on in those decks is not to tutor for infinite combos and win that way. Nothing against those strategies. We just know that those kind of put us into the next realm which is competitive which is where we don't want to be we still want to play our optimized Mm -hmm. decks against people's focus stacks we don't want to push ourselves so far away that you can't and i think that's kind of the thing it's hard to play a deck that's two levels above another deck you can play a deck that's one level oh look at you made it off the table yeah
2: i did yeah
1: i two-handed i (laughs) I saw it's because world cup i wanted to two-handed um okay and then let's talk about the final uh level which is
2: Yeah, absolutely. Competitive, it's basically blistering speed and power. The speed and power is out of control. But most importantly, you're not really making very many compromises at all.
1: I mean, you make zero.
2: You make zero compromises. There are people that try to make a little bit more budget competitive decks, and they work really well. But really, very, very few compromises.
1: Yeah, I think you could make a compromise for a budget. Like, I don't have $200 for a guy's cradle or whatever it is at now. Exactly. But I'm going to play... You know the closest card I can to that, and the best replacement as far as that's reasonable, exactly price wise. Yeah,
2: uh, and also they have set archetypes and strategies. Oftentimes, you'll see the commanders, or you'll see a card, and you'll know exactly what they're going for. They're going for Bomberman or Boonweaver combo. They're going to get Lab Maniac. Like
1: they're going to Doomsday you. They're going to get uh, Food Chain out. Those are the cards that you kind of are the boogeyman in the competitive format. And and I like this point because it's funny, this is the only place in all of Commander where the the meta is very well known. Totally. Right? Chain Veil, Teferi, Food Chain Tazri, Food Chain Prosh, Breakfast Hulk, you know, Thrasios and Timna. These are like... Stax versions, things like that, yeah. These are very, very good decks, very strong, but you're not typically building your deck thinking i can face anything that's ever been made which in all the other levels you you do think about
2: (laughs) totally totally yeah also the social contract shifts
1: yes there's none
2: The, the the social contract basically is like gone and now it's everyone expects to be competitive everyone expects to play the top thing and do everything you need to do to win which is kind of actually freeing in many situations where it's like I know exactly what you're trying to do and you know exactly what I'm trying to do it does take a little bit of the politics a little bit of the play of commander away but it's kind of a fun thing to experience
1: yeah and I and you know what I stated that incorrectly I don't think the social contract is gone I think their social contract is just a little bit different in the competitive realm than sort of the rest of EDH their social contract is the contract is we're cool if you mass land destruction you combo off on whatever turn you can do it you tutor for your win cons all that stuff that some of the other you know, power levels don't like or frown upon, our social contract says that stuff's all okay. Mm-hmm. And I think the moral of this story as far as the competitive versus casual, the never-ending conversation is concerned is that communication is just the key there, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't make a contract with somebody without negotiating it, right? I can't just enter a DJ into a, conver- into a contract. He has to <laughs> agree to it. And that's the problem we run into is just when no communication happened and therefore you're playing your competitive deck, I'm playing my focus deck and all of a sudden we didn't discuss it and my social contract is not the same as yours and because we both assumed, we, were, we we committed the other person to a contract that they didn't have any say in or didn't negotiate. That's not fair and so that's really incumbent upon all of us. Like we say, when you sit down at the table, just have a quick discussion and make sure everybody's on the general same page about power level and you know what i played with the competitive people um and a lot of casual people more casual than competitive honestly at gp vegas and all the competitive people were super cool about it they were just honest about well i have a very powerful deck and a lot of them had decks that weren't powerful and if everybody wanted to play that they were like cool and but that you know i had one guy was like my deck's powerful and i was like cool i'll pull out the most powerful deck i've got at least i know what i'm getting myself into man and then when he like comboed us out on like turn six i was like that was sweet you got us. Totally. I'm, nobody's mad about it. Everybody One guy knew. at the very
2: beginning I played against, he's like, uh, this is a well-built Narset deck. I'm just going to warn you. The power level is up there. Granted, a well-built Narset deck doesn't even reach the level of competitive it, it's EDH. It's tier two now, yeah. yeah but it's basically like he comes in. when it was the best deck? I do. Yeah, it was crazy. Partial
1: Paris, yeah.
2: Uh, but he... Came in actually saying that, and everyone knew what they were expecting. And yes, he won. He destroyed us all.
1: But there's no feel-bads at the end of that game. No
2: feel-bads at all. We knew what we were getting into. Because everybody
1: was in on the contract. It was negotiated beforehand. So, okay. You have a nice little note here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We're going to be talking about the sort of middle levels of this. We're not going to be talking about jank or really competitive very much. I don't have the tech to give you your new chair tribal card right now. I don't have that advice for you. It's too it's too specific. <laughs> it's so specific, and really, we're not we're not going to make your deck better unless we know exactly what you're going for in the, that jank strategy. In terms of competitive, the archetypes are set. Really, the there's a lot to talk about in terms of that strategy, but you're not really changing your deck or tuning it very much. Those lists, than maybe, those lists are really well established, and people quibble and argue about a handful of cards.
1: And I think a lot of times you find that somebody's just trying to sort of get their mana drain. They know they want it in there. It's just mm-hmm. an expensive card, and that's what – the the one of the barriers to competitive EDH is just literally like, I need to get these cards, but they're expensive, and so working towards them slowly with trading and stuff is going to take a while. Um, also – to be fair, we are not competitive EDH experts. So no, we're, really we're probably the wrong people to talk about that anyway.
2: I play it a few times, but honestly, I, I, I'm slow and struggle a little bit with the lines of play, whereas other people are like, know exactly what's going yeah, on. Exactly. And uh, I don't actually currently have a competitive deck, do you?
1: No. Uh, Mizics was my best deck, and it's not. It's an eight. It's maybe a nine. Like, it's definitely not a 10. It'll, it, it can, like, it can maybe keep one of those competitive decks at bay. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you get into a game with
2: four competitive decks, Done. It'll never win. Okay. You just You just have to sit there quietly and hope to like sneak in at the end. Maybe they'll just like destroy each other. There's no yeah. way. No yeah. Way. No way. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So let's... It can't s- win fast enough. And that's the thing about competitive decks is that they... They have sh-
2: very surefire ways to win and disruption as well in many cases. Yeah. It's that disruption combined with those win conditions that makes them so powerful.
1: Yeah. So good. Okay. Sorry. I interrupted.
2: Okay. So we're going to be talking about powering up your deck. And the first power level we're talking about is moving from that casual deck to that focused tier. And one thing to note is that when we're talking about casual decks and the focus decks, we're really talking about a pretty slow game. When you play with the precons, a lot of times that's going many, many, many turns. Yeah. And you talk about things at the higher end of the spectrum, the more competitive you de- get, the faster things are. The speed becomes really a critical issue.
1: Yeah, I would say, and I actually wrote down what I thought were turn estimates here. Um, I would say that casual games, they go maybe like... 15, 16, 17 turns. That would be a normal one. I know this because of game nights and the way that we've oh, yeah, played, and I yeah. keep I have to keep track of turns, so I've paid very much attention to turns. Um, so if your games are going somewhere around the 16 and 17 turns, maybe even slightly longer, it's a good chance you're falling sort of in this category. So, you know, it's a good thing to take into account because it will determine some of your card choices.
2: Totally. That speed is so important because... That many turns means that you have time to deploy strategies that you wouldn't in other games. And so speed of the format is really critical to understanding how to power up your deck. So one thing that I suggest that you do is uh, take what the deck is supposed to do and ramp it up. Do that better. I think that's an important thing is to know what your deck is supposed to do. Uh, Part of the things we talked about in terms of jank, where you just kind of take a collection and throw it together... Uh, that's not even the casual level. And sometimes the casuals, well, those pre-cons. They didn't have a focused plan. And so taking it from casual to uh, casual to focused means that you can actually focus your strategy, get all of those cards doing what you want them to do.
1: It's like we were saying about the Anala deck having like 10 or 11 cards that were actually for the Kess deck.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you want to take your deck from casual focus, you take out those Kesk cards, you put in more Anala cards because it's an Anala deck and you can't afford to be having like this weird side strategy that doesn't work with the rest of your strategy. So one of the things you want to do is look for, when you say whatever your deck's supposed to do, do it better, that to me is a synergy. Totally. You want more synergy. So you kind of take out cards that aren't on the main plan or even cards that are otherwise good. You know, I think that, that a lot of casual decks, they have good cards in them. You know, but that good card is not a synergy based card that works with your commander and therefore it, it it's sort of lesser on power level than something else only because it doesn't work with everything else in your deck so well. So its power level is kind of set in your deck. It doesn't have the ability to sort of rise above you know, what the card text is.
2: One thing that's really great with cards that work with your commander, in many situations they actually all work together as well, which is really important. We talked about uh, the wall tribal commander, Vivictus, and how basically you talked about uh, the green enchantment that uh, is a redundant effect. Assault formation is a redundant effect. And in many cases, those redundant effects all work together and make your deck more synergy-based. Yeah, you get these
1: layers of synergy. Exactly. And what happens is you you build this weird spider web where if one string is plucked away, the thing's still strong.
2: And that makes your deck more resilient, and it runs better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the card that we sort of listed here as sort of take out good cards that aren't on the game plan, plan of your deck uh, is Minds Dilation.
2: Oh, but Josh, I love Minds Dilation. It's a
1: great card. <laughs> it's five blue-blue for an enchantment. And whenever your opponent casts their first spell each turn, then you flip the top card of their library and you get to play it. It's, cast it but, or play it. It's cast it or It's play cast it because you, yeah. you don't get lands. You don't get lands. Right, right. Yeah. But
2: um, the thing is that very rarely will their top card synergize with your deck at all. You're just right. trying to get value as it goes around. And that's a great card. But maybe it doesn't work toward the ends that you want in terms of advancing the power level of your deck.
1: Yes, exactly. Like, what does it do with the Nala? Unless they're in a wizard's deck or something, it does nothing. And so it's like, yeah, it's extra mm-hmm. value. But you can probably find an extra value card that also has something to do with wizards and therefore can be, you know, can use Anala's ability and make it exponentially better. And I think that's a big pitfall that a lot of people fall into. They're just like, you know, you look at each card individually and each, each one's good, but they, do they add together into something? You know, is it, it's, 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 it's a, you know, it's a B when it's out. Mm hmm. And another card is a B when it's out. But when they're the, both together, they're a B plus. And then when I put another card out, they're all A's, you know? But mine's dilation and a lot of X is just a B, and then you put out another card and it doesn't change its value at all. It's still I just came up with those little letter grades. You know, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe it's a C plus or an A minus. I don't know. But you, you understand what I'm saying. Um
2: Yeah, well you were describing this this web yeah. and how synergy creates this levels of web, but then you mentioned that one way to prevent this this problem is to have a card that just synergizes with a part of your deck.
1: Right. Can you explain okay. that a little bit? Yeah. So this is something I run into a lot because I do a lot of tweeting and I'll tweet about new cards and people will, or people will tweet at me because they know my decks because of game nights in the show. And they'll say, are you going to put this in this deck? And it's, int- it's always interesting to me what people think should go in decks and shouldn't. And then the lines of conversation that sort of stem from that. So let's say that a card called um, desecrated tomb comes out and that's the new one from m19 and it says anytime uh, a creature card leaves your graveyard you make a one one bat so i was like oh i think this goes in the Athreos shadowborn apostles deck because of the way that athriosis triggers work every shadowborn apostle leaves your graveyard individually because for each one it creates a trigger for athrios where you ask your opponent do you want to pay three life or do i get it back to my hands and so if i put six in there I asked DJ six times, unless he pays life for all of them, I'm getting those some of them back to my hand, and for each one, I get a bat. And I thought that was pretty good. And then people were like, you know, a few people were like, okay, well, then you should maybe put uh, Anointed Procession in your deck because Anointed Procession mm. is three and a white for an enchantment that says anytime you cr- create a token, create two tokens instead. It basically parallel lives your tokens.
2: That's a powerful card, by the way.
1: Very powerful card. But I
2: think it has to be in the right deck, right?
1: And that's what I'm saying is you don't want to run stuff that only synergizes with a few other cards in your deck. My main plan in that in the, in the Shadowborn Apostles Athreos deck is never going to be make a bunch of tokens. And so Annoying Procession, while yes, it does synergize with that one new card that I want to put in my deck, it synergizes with the wrong side of it. The side of it that is sort of incidental value that I want to gain from doing something else that's on the main plan of the deck, which is getting Shadowborn Apostles in and out of the graveyard. So that kind of thought process i think is what holds a lot of sort of budding deck brewers back from making you know strides with their power level you know increasing the power level of their deck to where they want it to be because well it's like we said you're going from casual to focus you need to focus in you need to go and say things like my Athreos shadowborn apostles deck is about moving the Shadowborn Apostles in and out of the graveyard.
2: Yeah, so let's summarize. You just brought up something great. It's you knew exactly what your deck was supposed to do. You said, this is the focus of my deck. And everything kind of goes in on that focus. And if you have something that's good, but tangential to that focus, that's that doesn't actually help your focus of your deck. And that's why sometimes commanders help a lot with deck building because the commander provides that focus.
1: Yes, that's a really good point. Atheros doesn't say anything about tokens on it. It's almost like you build the graveyard recursion spider web and then this the desecrated tomb tricks you into like wanting to build this other spider web off to the side that's this token-based one. Don't fall for it.
2: Yeah. Bats and spiders, they don't even mix very well. <laughs> it just doesn't even make sense. <laughs> All right. Okay, so one thing that I think is important is that uh, you should run, you should not run one-off effects. You should strive to have recurring value. Yeah. And the reason why is you have the time. You have the time for cards to pay off turn after turn after turn. And you don't just need things right at this moment. Uh, so for example, running Mold Drifter over Divination. I think that that could be a good idea.
1: Yeah, I think it. You know, a lot of this does depend on the deck. So, Mold Drifter is a two-two flyer that if that comes in and you draw two cards, Divination is just a sorcery that draws you two cards. Divination costs three mana. Mold Drifter costs five mana. It, there are cases to be made for both of those cards, and both of and and the case you make is based on whether you can reuse it, which is what you're saying, right? So, Absolutely. So, a deck that has Say Brago as the commander, which is going to blink your effect, your your permanence. Well, Mold is obviously way better because I play it, I draw two cards, and then I attack with Brago. I blink it, I draw two more cards.
2: Josh, are you saying that Mold Drifter needs to have synergy with your commander <laughs> deck's focus in order for it to give you that recurring value?
1: Right. Not all synergy is recursion based, though. Right. This is yeah. This is an engine something. recurring like the yeah.
2: value keeps coming back. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But on the other hand. So Divination, you do not play in the Brago deck because that doesn't make any sense because you just cast it one time and Brago has no ability to do anything about it. I mean, maybe there were fringe cases, which is like Archaomancer, Snapcaster Mage, Blinked, but now I'm doing the Anointed Procession thing, right?
2: Yeah, or or you've basically said, I'm changing the deck all the way around where Divination is better because the focus becomes spell slinging and drawing cards. Right.
1: I'm going to put Mnemonic Wall, Archaomancer, Snapcaster, everything I can think of. Mm in the deck, and then maybe, yeah, even then that seems like a bad idea, but you see what I'm saying. (laughs) But but let's take cast Dissonant Mage Mm -hmm. allows you to cast instant or Sorcery uh, uh, out of your graveyard each turn. So now all of a sudden Moldrifter's bad in that deck when it's great in the Brago deck, and Divination's, you know, at least playable in the cast deck when it's bad in the Brago deck, and that is sort of, the only difference is, can I reuse it?
2: Absolutely. Uh, There's another way to get recurring value out of a card, and that's in the card itself. So another three mana enchantment that draws cards, Rhystic Study. So good. It's so good. And it's so good because it gives you the opportunity to draw cards turn after turn after turn after turn.
1: So that's two and a blue for an enchantment, and you draw a card whenever your opponent casts a spell unless they pay one extra mana.
2: Josh, do you always pay one extra mana?
1: I try to, but it's difficult and it really depends on how many other players have blinked because there becomes a point where it's diminishing returns right like if everybody else is just gonna let he already has
2: 15 cards in his hand you're like like the 60th card card doesn't matter that much (laughs) by the way it actually does matter it still matters
1: (laughs) like the difference between your sixth card and your fifth card is a lot your difference between your 21st card and your 20th is not that much um uh but yes, Rhystic Study, Phyrexian Arena is one of these. I think Outpost Siege, a lot of these, those are all card drawer cards. Mm-hmm. A lot of these are very, very powerful because their ability to just keep giving you value over time. And like you said, if the game's going to go longer, then those cards are going to really pay you in the long term. And, and if you think about a competitive CEDH, they never play cards like that because the game's not going go to go to turn five time. or six. There's no time. Yeah, if you're going to play Phyrexian Arena on turn three and the game's only going go to go to turn five, it it doesn't do anything for you. It's like, it draws Absolutely. you two cards. Like
2: So Josh, we didn't talk about this before. What do you think about Planeswalkers in this category if you can protect them? Yeah. I think Value turn after turn after turn. Yeah. This might be the right place for it, the transition from sort of casual to focused. Because we... We kind of talk bad about Planeswalkers a lot, but I think we're coming from maybe an optimized towards competitive uh, mindset.
1: Here's the argument I would make is that there tends to be more creatures on the field the more you go down this power level thing. So like competitive EDH decks tend to have fewer creatures in play at any given time than your, your casual and your jank decks. People just play a lot of creatures. That's one of the exciting things about magic and the things that's the easiest to wrap your brain around. So... I'd say that at the lower power levels, there's just a lot of creatures sitting around and your Planeswalkers are still gonna die to them attacking them. (laughs) So I still don't know. I would almost think they're a little bit better higher up the chain.
2: Interesting, interesting.
1: Um, There's other problems there later, but yeah, okay. Um,
2: I think that the next category that I wanna talk about is that if no one's gonna punish you, you should play super greedy cards. Yeah. People have to punish you for playing these cards before you take them out of your deck. And so if you have a casual deck, you can increase the power level tremendously by playing cards like Seasons Past, four green, green for a sorcery that has you return cards from your graveyard, but it's not just one, it's not just two. You get to choose a card for each different CMC.
1: Yeah. So you You can take a
2: land and then a one drop and then a two drop and then a four drop, a six drop and a seven drop. And suddenly you can get six cards for it. You get so many cards back. Now, when is that card good? at a very specific time in the late game when you have a bunch of stuff you want in your graveyard and you're spending six mana for it. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's so greedy, but if you can get it off and you have the time to then redeploy those cards, oh, it's game ending. A similar effect is uh, Praetor's Council, yep. which basically lets you get your whole graveyard and just that's that's in your hand now.
1: And your and hand is unlimited size. From no that maximum point on, hand size.
2: So. It's not an emblem. It's just sort of like a rule that's out there in the ether. It's <laughs> like, yeah, you don't have to worry about that anymore.
1: <laughs> that is weird. That's not an emblem or something. It's just like, remember that. You don't have to worry about hand size anymore. Um, I put Sunbird's Invocation on here as another one, which is a seven man enchantment that kind of cascades you. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, the problem with all these cards is they don't do anything right now and so you and they're expensive so you spend a bunch of mana and you're set up for later but you just spend a bunch of mana and did nothing right now and so that again in in this power level grouping can work because you do have the time and the reason that those games are going a certain length is because nothing's pushing the action so hard and putting on a ton of pressure that like you're you can take a turn and do that sometimes so now,
2: one thing that's important is that these types of cards, uh, these greedy cards, are very similar to the cards we told you to cut up top with Mind's Dilation. True. So, one thing that's important is don't embrace greedy cards at a sacrifice while you're sacrificing the synergy of your deck. Yeah. Because a deck full of greedy cards is not going to work well. Like, play- it's not going to function.
1: Play Seasons Past and Praetor's Council in a deck that's already putting a bunch of stuff in the graveyard. Played in Maron. Exactly. It, then it's synergizing. Play Sunbird's Invocation when, you know, maybe it's Joda or something where you're cheating out spells that are bigger than they are, and, and you know, that's going to synergize with what you're doing. But we'll talk about it in the next thing. Uh, you're not so worried about sort of CMC and Converted mana cost considerations here. You still have to worry about it a little. But, you know, what's the raw power level of this thing? Still synergize but you can be a little greedier.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I like this next one a lot. It says, run flexible cards. So you're gonna see you know, a lot of strategies. You can't predict, just because there's a lot of different decks, especially, and, and a little bit stronger once they start getting focused. And you're gonna need to interact with your opponent You know, sometimes, and you're not always going to be able to predict exactly what that is because it's not a known metagame like competitive. So, you know, even like the charms, um,
2: Chaos Warp. We like Anguished Unmaking and Utter End because it just exiles any, it's an answer for anything. Right. It's really good.
1: Yeah, it says non-land permanent on it. It's going to get rid of your problem most of the time. Yeah, Chaos Warp, again, because it handles any type of card that's out there. As opposed to something like um, murder that just gets rid of a creature, that's a really narrow card and probably, you know.
2: What was the card that uh, we talked about on the set review? That's one black and it exiles. Infernal a, Reckoning. There we go. Infernal Reckoning. Yeah. That is so specific. The mana cost is so small. It's it's like a it's like a razor blade to get exactly what you want, and. Sometimes that could be good in this level of deck, but I think it's better in the level of deck that Josh normally plays.
1: Yeah, it's it's weird, right? Where the narrower, sometimes less powerful card is going to be better in a more powerful deck. Yeah. But it's like I said at the time, which is like, you can't run it in a deck that's not routinely... That's not okay with having a couple of dead cards in the hand because a lot of what that deck's doing is drawing a lot of cards and having answers.
2: And Josh expects <clears throat> to see a certain thing across the table from him, and so he's getting the exact right card that he needs to to get at it. Whereas in this lower level power, you could see literally anything.
1: And the CMC doesn't matter as much, right? So like... Totally. The fact that it's one CMC for an informal reckoning is not as big a deal when your game's going to go 18 turns. Absolutely. It's much bigger deal when your game's going to go, you know... 10 turns.
2: Because you need to use your mana to deploy your strategy. The, usually, the people that play use their mana more are going to be in an advantage. And when you can deploy all of your cards in this short amount of time, man, it just means that your deck is a big advantage over your opponents.
1: Okay. And the last sort of big thing you can think about when tuning up from casual to focused is your mana base. Um, we did two entire episodes on mana base. I don't remember the exact episode numbers. We've got too many episodes now. I can't keep track of them all. But if you just if you just put in the search bar "Command Zone Mana Base," you'll get two episodes. We go over a lot of of, of good ways to tune up your mana base, and I think all decks. I don't care if you are jink, casual, focused, optimized. If you haven't spent any time on your mana base, you need to. It will mm-hmm. increase the fun you're going to have by a lot. Um, but you make some good points
2: here. Oh, totally. I think that you should. Make your mana base work for you if you have the time. Remember, we're talking about slower games. And so tap lands aren't as big of a problem. And so if you can get advantage out of your lands, which you're going to play anyways, and entering the battlefield tapped doesn't really hurt you, then things like the scry lands are amazing. In the late game, scrying a card that you don't need to the bottom is almost like drawing a card. Yeah, And a land that fixes you and draws you a card... So so good, but that's if you have the time to deploy it. And sometimes tapped lands are really crippling for a deck, but in this slower format, you can embrace them. Same thing goes with the cycling lands. Cycling lands enter the battlefield tapped, but you can usually pay some sort of mana, cycle them and draw something else. Uh, If you can draw a card later in the game, get rid of a land and draw a card, so good. That is very, very powerful. But coming into play tapped sometimes doesn't work for more competitive decks.
1: Right, right. Um, yeah, because you need to do something now, and there's these scenarios that happens where it's like you have a five drop, you have four mana, you're like, I need to draw a land. Then I can play my five drop. Then you draw a land that has to come into play tapped, and you're just a turn behind at a point in the game where you really don't want to be, and you can lose games because of it, depending on how powerful your meta is, but. Like you said, sometimes the lands give you advantage and you can win games because uh, I'm not under any pressure and I'm going to play a, a scry land now and I'm going to find a card I, you know, a turn earlier than I was going to get it. Yeah.
2: Josh described the perfect scenario. Notice he was talking about your fifth land. That's when a lot of these optimized decks, these a lot of these competitive decks are freaking out. They need to get stuff on the battlefield. They need to be deploying their plan. That's and, do or die And the example that I'm talking about is like, oh, like when you have 12 lands on the battlefield and you draw another one. Yep. You know, two completely different scenarios, two completely different styles of deck.
1: Um, okay. So, let's talk about the next level. So, that's sort of how you – I'm going to go over these points really quick just Absolutely. one more time. So, how you go from casual to focused is you – Take what your deck's supposed to do and do it better. So take out the things that aren't on the main plan, add in more synergy. Don't get distracted by stuff that only synergizes with a few of your cards. Stay focused on your main plan. Don't run one-off effects. You know, If you can, run cards that award recurring value. If your play group is a little bit slower, it's not gonna punish you. You can embrace some of the more greedy cards, still be synergistic, but you can go for stuff that like, listen, this is not gonna do anything when I play it, but every play after that's gonna be awesome. Run flexible cards. You know, be more poised to answer a more variety of things. Don't be so narrow. And tune your mana base and don't be scared of some scry lands, cycling lands, maybe utility lands that give you some kind of value but come into play taps and ha- tapped or maybe have a downside because in a slower, you know, group or playgroup or metagame, you aren't as likely to be punished for that. Okay.
2: All right, we're going to change gears now because mm. we're going from focused to optimized. And one thing that you need to note is that this is a very distinct break because our advice changes dramatically as the pace of the game changes and as these decks change. And one thing that's really important is that we explained that these are very different because so often Commander players run up against each other and they're like, oh, well, this card's good in my deck. And you're like, no, that card sucks. (laughs) <laughs> there's no context for talking about it and we're basically talking about two completely different scenarios two completely different decks completely different situations but instead of actually talking about it we're just saying no your card sucks
1: yeah although I think the the focused and optimized decks can play in the same game together the optimized is going to have an advantage but it's not so much that is I'm more talking
2: about the casual to focus yes, versus now, the casual the like that. to yeah.
1: optimized which is sort of the second level to the fourth level it's the gap is so big that the casual decks are going to have a real hard time against the optimized decks um so pace of the game for optimized to focused is fast and i think these games average somewhere in the 12 turn range 13 turn range and this is sort of the norm for game nights games we've had games that have gone longer and obviously you these are just generalizations you can have games in competitive edh that go 15 turns like that can definitely happen um But in general, these are going to be over, I think, around a dozen turns.
2: I think that what's important is also the turn where you need to have answers. You need to be doing things. You need to have board presence. Because a lot of the times those CDH games, competitive EDH games, go longer. But they had the conflict at an early turn.
1: Turn four, turn five, maybe turn three. Was a moment where like somebody would have won, except for that somebody else managed to stop it. And exactly. now exactly, yeah.
2: And these focused and optimized decks suddenly they'll they'll trail off. It takes a little bit longer to win the game, but the critical fight, the critical battle, what actually won the game might have been as early as turn ten, maybe.
1: Yeah, I, I you'll notice on the podcast I often will mention turn eight, nine, ten. Oh yeah, as the time when you should look around for certain things because that I believe is normally where the games are won. Like you said that might not be where the finish line is actually crossed, but that's where the move is made that, that usually wins the game somewhere in there. And it might take you a turn or two to wrap it up. But, um, mm-hmm. so, so, what's the first point under taking your deck from focused to optimized?
2: So, I believe that you should play cards that do something right now.
1: A lot more cards that do something right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. In fact, most of your cards should do something right now.
2: <laughs> and actually, the more it costs mana, the more this is true.
1: Right, so... If you, you can play Deathrite Shaman, right? Deathrite Shaman is amazing, doesn't do anything right now, but it's a one-drop, so it's going to come out early. It also doesn't expose you to big blowouts. But if you play Sunbird's Invocation, you're in big trouble because it's a seven-drop, it doesn't do anything right now, and you're just asking to get blown out yeah. by playing cards like that. Um, so that's the difference. Is the more CMC it costs, the more it has to do something right now.
2: I also think that if you have cards that require you to do something else, maybe have an extra turn. So we're looking at cards like maybe Colonial Hydra or uh, Atali. Atali in the 99. Yeah, Atali in the 99, where you play this really cool and awesome creature, but you're kind of crossing your fingers and really hoping that you can go a whole turn of the table before you can really realize the advantage of that card.
1: So that means some decks, uh, Zenagos is one that comes to mind that can, like, give the thing haste.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, then you're Itali talking about is, the synergy, right? If the synergy is there.
1: Then Atali sort of counts as a creature that does something right now. I would count it there. But in your average deck, and I I saw this in GP Vegas a lot, where somebody would just play a card and you're like, yeah, that card is good. Atali is good. Atali decks are really good. Mm-hmm. Atali's not good in that deck because your deck doesn't seem to be built in a way that is going to guarantee that Atali's always going to have haste. And mm-hmm. if Atali doesn't have haste, Atali's not good because, like you said, any card you play, I don't care what it is, that you cast it and it costs a significant amount of mana, probably four or more, and you have to sit there and hope you untap with it is really risky.
2: Oh, yeah. So I want to talk about a card. Okay. Uh,. And uh, this this might get some some back and forth. But uh, I want to talk about Phyrexian Arena and how it's not actually that good in this specific scenario. So let's just, I want to break down Phyrexian Arena. First, it's one black black for an enchantment that says, at the beginning of your upkeep, you lose a life and you draw a card. It's Howling
1: Mine for yourself.
2: So let's just talk about this. You play Phyrexian Arena. Yep. Okay. This is the first turn. Does nothing.
1: This is turn three, but yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. The first turn of Phyrexian Arena is on the battlefield. Yeah. Okay. You play uh, it, nothing happens. Nothing happens. Yep. Okay. The second turn of Phyrexian Arena, you have now drawn a card and lost a life. Uh, Josh, three mana, draw cycle. one card. draw one, Yeah, cycle? No. That's not, and lose a life. That's unacceptable.
1: No, you'd never play that card. Okay. I mean, probably wouldn't play the card Yeah.
2: So now we go to the next turn. This yeah. is now the third turn of Phyrexian Arena, and we've drawn two cards, lost two life, Over three turns.
1: It's a really bad divination.
2: Yeah. And we have instant effects that do this better. A sign in blood, a knight's whisper. Read the
1: bones. Yeah. Well,
2: we're not even to the read the bones level yet. I mean, yeah. So, okay. Still not very good. The next turn. The fourth turn of Phyrexian Arena. Now, we're finally drawing three cards.
1: You've drawn three cards. You lost three life. I'd say at that point, Phyrexian Arena has actively been good.
2: I think it's fine.
1: I think it's been good, but not great.
2: So let's compare it to, you said Read the Bones, right? Yeah. Read the Bones is two and a black for a sorcery that says scry two, draw two, lose two. Yeah. You see four cards with that.
1: Maybe. If you like the top two, you don't.
2: I mean, then you found what you want, right? So at that moment, at that time, you get to see more cards. You get the ones that you want. And a lot of times people argue and say that scry two is almost like drawing a card. Yeah. Yeah um it's pretty close it's 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 pretty
1: close yeah maybe like two-thirds of a card i would say yeah uh so so maybe that's breathe the bones is kind of equal to phyrexian arena yeah and and
2: we don't have this weird suspended effect across many different turns somebody might
1: austere command they might cleansing nova they might merciless eviction they might just what about something like
2: ancient craving yeah it's one extra mana but you get your three cards immediately that turn
1: yep yep
2: okay so now we're going into the fifth turn five turns and now you've essentially drawn that extra card you now drawn four cards and you've seen this value over all of these turns and now i think we're feeling pretty good yeah but that's a long that's a long time
1: yeah you're saying you played on turn three and then we got turn four turn five turn six and now on turn seven
2: you feel good i feel good you feel good
1: yeah uh it's fair i think those those things are fair i think you know it's three cmc and it depends a lot but You know, what's your deck's normal turn three play?
2: That's something to consider.
1: It's not a mana rock.
2: See, what Josh is getting at is it's all about speed. Notice he's not saying, oh, it's good, you're wrong, it's bad. He's breaking it down and trying to figure out, well, what's the speed? What is your turn three play? Thinking about how long the game is going on. And that's the right way to approach it. Yeah. So you're thinking the turn three play, if it's a mana rock versus this, then...
1: Well, and there's not great mana rocks at three. Coalition is good. Yeah. Chromatic Lantern, only some decks, four and five color decks. Um, then we're down to what? Dark Steel? Ingot. I mean, you're a lot playing, of times you're
2: playing a two-mana rock, and then you're ramping to four. You're playing something on four. Good so, point. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, I mean, depends on where your commander sits. I think this is a really interesting argument, a sort of this or that argument. It, and you make a really good case that Read the Bones maybe could be cl- at least close to equivalent to Phyrexian Arena in a, lo- in a lot of scenarios. And if you draw it on turn five or six...
2: So let me talk also about optimized decks, meaning that they're so focused, a lot of the time you're looking for very specific cards. Yeah. Cards that are going for your combo, cards that work with your general. Everything has more of a focus, and so raw card advantage might not be as good as that scry two draw two.
1: Yeah, although I wouldn't put optimized into the combo category all the time. I think competitive usually yeah, are, right. But but, optimized decks can have combos in them and if that's how you're trying to win i can see it yeah no it's a it's a a compelling argument late
2: game you need that removal spell you need that answer you need that some, you need action and
1: well that's the point of the thing that you also you didn't really bring up which is yeah on turn seven phyrexian arena is atrocious and read the bones is equal to what it was on turn three basically Mm -hmm. Mm um maybe not exactly but I don't know. I don't have a great rebuttal. It's it's an, it's a really interesting thing. And I know like competitive CEVH players would not touch Forexian Arena. They wouldn't go near it.
2: One of the most important parts. But they'll play Read the Bones. One of the most important parts is that.
1: Not Read the Bones, but something like it.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the most important parts is that Josh and I established a context of what we're talking about. So we both know that we're talking about moving from focused to optimized. Okay, we're, if we were talking about a casual deck and I said, should I put Phyrexian Arena in here? Right. Josh would unequivocally be absolutely throw it in there.
1: It's great. That game's gonna go 18 turns. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> Even if you draw it on a turn nine, you're still gonna draw nine cards off it.
2: We have a shared idea of what situation we're talking about. Right. We've basically taken a card and started comparing it and playing it out over many turns. And so as we're tuning our deck and adjusting the power level, we together are figuring out the tools and figuring out exactly how to tune it. This exact example of this card is what you should do with many different cards. Think about how it actually plays out. Because here's a trick, Josh. Here's a problem. Phyrexian Arena, after you play it, it just feels great to draw two cards every turn. It tricks you. It tricks you into thinking that it's better than it is because it feels so great to draw two cards. But you've forgotten that you invested the mana earlier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you invest the mana, it does matter. But it's the same for, you know... Any of those black draw spells, which is that you're you're going to pay three mana. Uh, yeah, I don't I I don't really have a good rebuttal to it. I think and you're we right. Don't need, and we don't need for, a rebuttal
2: because it's the process, it's the conversation, uh, because we're not going to be able well, to land on a specific thing like, thing like Yeah, yeah. This is good. This is bad. You know what I, I mean? I went into
1: this being like,
2: No, Phyrexia Arena is good. What are you talking about? Oh, but, is this why you were? Do,
1: do, I was like, GLK Josh disagrees. Josh I disagree <laughs> here. And then I was like, mm, I kind of do agree. It's interesting. Maybe I got to go take out some Forex Arenas out of my deck. <laughs> all right um, oh no I don't throw it quite yet because the next point is in direct <laughs> contrast to uh, the previous sort of level of going from casual to focus now we're going focus to optimize and we're saying cut your greedy cards at this point you gotta be really careful
2: people will punish you now yes they'll punish you for your greedy cards notice the thing that said before is like play your greedy cards embrace them if no one punishes you for them now you can expect the punishment to come,
1: yeah. So you got to be real careful about playing Sunbird's Invocation because, like I said, you pay seven mana, it does nothing. And a your shields are going to be down after you do it, and they might take aban- advantage of that window to try and win. B, if they have something that just happens to get rid of it, they time walk you, oh. you know. Yeah, if they have austere command. They time walk you and do a bunch of other stuff they wanted to do and you that was just horrible for you. Absolutely. So. You know,
2: one of my examples for greedy cards is Desertion. Yeah. Desertion is three blue blue for a counterspell, but if you counter a creature or an artifact, I think, right? Yep. You get that card on your side of the battlefield. That's awesome. That's a huge blowout. They play their card, boom, five mana counterspell but it's so greedy. How often are you going to hold up five mana for your counterspell? It's, it's hard. Just, it's hard. And and sometimes that affects your gameplay as it's going. It's just such a greedy card. You want to you want minimize that and make sure that you just have the answer, have the counterspell when you need it.
1: Not that there aren't decks that would play Desertion, but those decks are Mizzix decks. Those decks are Talran decks. You can't just throw it in a deck that has blue thinking like, this is just good in all blue decks because yeah, like...
2: I actually think I might. I mean, Mizzix is different, but for a Talran deck... I don't I'm definitely not running desertion over every other counterspell that's less than it.
1: No, I think there's there's arguments to be had because you're just leaving your mana open generally on other people's turns. And yeah. so like you're you're not saying I in a deck you have to say well if I don't play desertion then what am I playing? And Talrun says, oh, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna bring Geyser. Yeah, I would play well, I would play genius, every single,
2: gonna, ca- almost every single counter spell below it first, I think.
1: I don't know, I think you can afford to have it in that deck because you have other options. You're always leaving your mana open. If something really sweet comes out that you wanna take, you take it or that's a combo piece that you really don't want them to have or is their commander at the wrong time, you can really cripple a deck by taking their commander. I think that deck though is leaving its mana all open, all open all the time. And so five mana open to it is not that big a deal.
2: I'm also, but I'm worried about the interaction in the early turns. I'm holding that desertion on turn four, and I'm like, point. I can can this be just a counterspell? Can yeah. this be a swan song? That's what I'm thinking as well.
1: That's a good point. Yeah, and I definitely wouldn't play it above the swan songs and the. And what we're doing is we're trying to balance
2: yeah. the greed because. If you, if you just basically go for no greed whatsoever, then you're leaving value on the table. So what Josh and I are trying to do is find that line yeah. of greed, right? Is it line is desertion greed. Exactly. Is desertion gr- just greedy enough so we won't get punished?
1: Here's where I wouldn't play it 100%, which is in decks that have blue but aren't permission decks and aren't, are going to mostly want to play things on their turn. Mm-hmm. And that is the type of deck where desertion is not going to be good because what you're going to do is leave five mana open and then you're going to have to just... Fire it off against a crappy thing because you didn't want to n- not use the five mana, but at the same time, you don't have anything any other options. You know, good control decks have a bunch of options and they're just like, go, and I'll make a decision based upon what happens. And desertion's one of the things I might do, but I also might on the thing because I don't want it. Or I also might just stroke of genius or whatever and draw a bunch of cards because nothing really scary happened. Mm-hmm. And and then I think it's fine. But that's a narrow deck, right? That's not every deck. Oh yeah. And I think desertion gets put in the category of like one of the better counter spells. And it's a really interesting point that it's maybe not because yeah, it costs five. Um, another one I put here was Nissa's renewal. Mm. This is a card I've, I saw a few times at GP Vegas. Um, it puts it's six mana sorcery puts three lands into play and you gain seven, life. seven life. I believe it seems really good. You can't take your six turn off and do nothing. And not, you know, yeah, you got three lands in play. You got a few life. You just, that's, it's way too greedy. You need synergy in your deck to do it. If you have landfall triggers, maybe it works. But in, in a lot of decks, just getting three more mana isn't, isn't worth it. Because like I said, shields are down, did a bunch of stuff. That might be the turn when people try and win or
2: make the game winning play. Totally. And that actually brings us into our next category, which is bringing the curve of your ramp down. You just described a ramp spell that brought you from what six, six to, to nine.
1: nine.
2: Yeah, this, sometimes those games are ending, and so if you can bring your ramp down, you cut explosive vegetation, hour of promise, traverse the outlands, boundless realms, and you embrace cards like far nature's lore, fellwar stone, uh, cold steel heart. Notice I cut things that are four or more and yeah. embraced a ramp that's two or less. Yep. Not to say the four or more isn't powerful. But if the game is ending soon, you, you don't you don't have time to start ramping on turn five to then actually play magic when you get to 10 mana because your opponents are playing critical spells right now.
1: It's not just that too. I think it has to do with the ability when you top deck it later, or not top deck it, when you draw, I guess top decking is just drawing it. Top decking is when you have no cards in hand though. Yeah. Really. When you draw it later to fit it in with something else and be mana efficient. So mm-hmm. a lot of what we were talking about as far as the... There's just this general theory of magic that whoever spends the most mana is going to win the game over the course of a game. And so if you, on turn five, only tap four of your lands and leave one and just don't use that mana, and then you do that, you know, sometimes there's two mana left over that you didn't use, and you do that over the course of the game, and you left ten mana on the table but another player didn't, there's a good chance that other player has an advantage over you because they were able to cast ten more mana worth of stuff.
2: Magic's a lot about resources and resource management, and if someone uses more resources than you, then they have an advantage.
1: So... Farseek fits in with a lot more different cards than Explosive Vegetation does, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I need four mana. Well, if I have six mana, it's hard to fit Explosive Vegetation in. It's probably my entire turn, which means would I want to do that or play a six drop? But if I have a four drop and Farseek, I can do both, ramp my mana, advance my game plan, and play something else that affects the board and hits the table... That versatility—it's like flexibility on Chaos Warp versus Murder in a different way, but it's it's very similar as far as conceptually. And Another so, thing
2: that Josh touched on is curve considerations. Sometimes you don't have a relevant play on two, but on four, there are a lot of good cards at four.
1: Yeah, and so a lot of times your commander is at four.
2: Absolutely, and so you're robbing yourself of a really powerful play uh, of on four mana, whereas on two mana, well, your plays are a little bit limited. The power level is by definition a little bit lower.
1: And at that point, your opponents are unlikely to be doing things that are as worrying to you. So you can afford to play Farsig, play uh, Signet, play things like that. Whereas on turn six, if you play Nissa's Renewal, that's a turn where your opponent may just go off, you know. And it's possible at the optimized level for them to be winning the game. And I don't mean literally comboing out necessarily, although they could. But making the play that makes them basically impossible to beat before they win. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Another thing that I like to cut is high variance cards. One of my cards that I just really don't like but people love is Illusionist Bracers. Illusionist Bracers is two colorless mana for an equipment. It has an equip cost of three, and you can basically, it lets you copy activated abilities. In my mind, Illusionist Bracers is best when you're already doing the thing that's causing you to be successful. It's doubling up something that's already good rather than getting you to that place where you need to do something good. For example, I have a Borborygmos enraged deck. Right. If I'm at the point in time where Borborigmos is on the battlefield and I can start chucking lands, I feel like I'm doing really well. I don't need to double that up. Another example, this is Doubling Cube. Yep. By the way, these are still powerful cards, but if I have enough mana to get to a point where Doubling Cube really starts doing the game, like... I, I don't know. That's that's a little bit of a high variance. They win more. They're exactly they're win more. Where they don't do anything on their own, but when you're already doing something great, they make that thing better.
1: You know, uh, a card that's been getting talked about a lot of people for some reason um, lately is Helm of the Host.
2: That oh, I totally agree with. So you, So
1: Helm of the Host is a card. Um, it's four mana equipment, five to equip. At the beginning of combat, you create a copy of equipped creature, and it's not a legend. So what you can do, the token copy is not a legend. And also, the token copy doesn't go away at end of turn. So it sort of progenitor mimics a Sakashima copy of a legend, if anybody knows of those cards. It's powerful. It's very powerful. So you put it on, say, your commander, it's, you know, the most common thing. And then you make a copy of it, and you have two copies of your commander out because, again, the token copy does not obey the legendary rule. Sounds amazing. Sounds incredible. There's so many broken things you can do with it. Yet, and yet, I don't love this card because the blowout potential is enormous. We're talking nine mana. Four to play it, five to equip it. You, If they just remove the creature in response to the equipping, they time walked you. And all the stuff that removes your creature is cheaper than nine mana by a lot. Swords Blousher's Path to Exile, Chaos Warp, Anguish on Making utter end. Not to mention stuff like Chaos or Cyclonic Rift Evacuation, things like that. I just don't believe that. I,
2: I It's either great and amazing or actively hurts you and the variance between those two is enormous. That that's that's not something that rewards you. It's not something that that rounds out your deck.
1: I mean, The scenario where you play it and don't equip it immediately is absolutely you can't do it. That's a card that doesn't do anything right now. For nine mana, it's a card that does something right now technically, right? You play it, you equip it. But for nine mana, it's only 10 mana to cost, like, Ulamog. Ulamog on cast exiles two things. And then is this huge indestructible threat that if they don't get rid of it, they'll die to. You don't have to do anything else, and it's nearly impossible to get blown out. It's not impossible, but it's cl- <laughs> it's, it's hard.
2: It's very difficult.
1: Yeah. You're going to exile two things, right? That is a card that costs one more mana than what Helm of the Host is doing, and it's going to be better like 99% of the time, and your window of um, vulnerability is very small. Mm-hmm. So... Listen, and people, they're always like, oh, and, and you know what? People say this to me constantly. It's probably the thing I hear the most these days, which is, well, you're saying that because of your meta, because of your playgroup.
2: And by the way, we are saying that a little bit because of our playgroup. Right now, we're talking about moving from focus to optimize. Right. We're talking about very specific decks right now. Right. And if you are, again, not punished for this extremely greedy card, it could do really good stuff. It actually could just win the game for you super easily. Helm of the easy. Host
1: is amazing down in the focused yeah. and the and the casual levels. I think it's probably really, really good. And once you get up to Optimize, it's not. And what I'm saying is if you play against me, I will punish you for that card. And therefore, I don't think that card is great. I'm not saying it's horrible. And people only see things in black and white. Just because you see say a card is dangerous, high variance, greedy. I'm not saying it's horrible. I'm not saying it's the worst card and you should never put it in your deck or you're an idiot for playing it. I'm just saying, like, I don't love it. I like it. I wish I could get it on my creature. It would be cool. There would be a cool story. I'm scared to try
2: it. I don't, I actually don't, <laughs> I actually don't love it. And I actually I think mean, that Helm might be, I mean, you might even get punished, not just from focused to optimized, but even in casual decks, you might get punished with this card.
1: I don't think so. I mean.
2: You don't think so? just I mean, seems to be it's, Terminate it's, or something d- like that. Yeah. It's
1: definitely possible. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's not as likely. Disenchant. But Disenchant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, Disenchant doesn't punish you. Disenchant is just, I mean, it punishes you. Well, wait, you pay, you pay yeah, four yeah. mana, you but go the to equip it, it's just like, turns. yeah, no. The game's you're, gonna go 19 turns. You're right, you're so, right. So that's not right. as bad, yeah. but yeah. Um, okay, sorry. No, so
2: you focused home a lot the on the on the, the mana cost of this. Right. Because you're thinking about, well, when am I playing this? Am I playing a turn five? You know, what? Well, Do I want an equipment on turn five? And so we're actually talking a lot about the pace of the game, the speed of the game, and in many cases, the mana curve of the game. And one thing that you can do is you can bring all of your spells on your mana curve down a little bit to make yourself faster, to make yourself more competitive. I think
1: this is probably the single thing, that's hard to say, but my gut is that this is adjusting the mana curve of your deck. Is actually the single thing that sort of moves the power level of your deck up as you go through the ranks mm-hmm. uh, you'll notice op- i did an we did an entire episode about mana curve once too and i think it's probably one of our better ones as far as like if you want to build more powerful decks go listen to our mana curve episode the difference i've experienced in the power level of my deck since i started really paying attention to mana curve is it's the biggest single change i think you can make i really do it's just doing more stuff having more options, like I said, being able to fit in multiple spells on a turn.
2: We talked about the, de- the being able to deploy your resources. Yes. So resource management, and you were talking about, well, don't have this one mana waiting around. Don't cast this, and then you're wasting mana. It's all about hitting all of those points along the curve. And if you build your deck properly, then you can hit all of those points, use more resources than your opponent, and then you have a distinct advantage over them and a distinct advantage in terms of your speed.
1: And it's just way more fun because you're doing more stuff. That's true. That's true. You just are. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you were saying improve your overall mana curve, cut expensive costing cards. This is the part people don't like to hear, DJ.
2: I don't even like to hear it. I don't like my own advice right here because what did I write down? I wrote down to cut expropriate.
1: Yeah, this is... uh, I just want to give everybody an update. I have said many times on the show that I've never cast expropriate and not won the game. The streak is over. I lost one game in Vegas where I cast it.
2: You let the card down, Josh. I did. That's you m- let Expropriate it was actually, down.
1: <laughs> I'll be honest. It was through a misplay on my part that I lost <laughs> that game. But it doesn't matter. The streak is over. It's still amazing. Um, I think c- cards like Expropriate, right? So you have to look at your mana curve. You have to go like anything, seven mana and above. I can only have a few of them. And I'm talking like, how many cards do you think seven mana plus your average deck wants? Your average optimized deck wants. Oh your yeah,
2: average optimized deck wants. Um, it's
1: average. Like obviously we can think yeah, of Yeah, let me think.
2: Let me think. I'm trying to th- see right now I'm trying to think of my optimized decks. Yeah. Is it and actually some of my optimized decks, not very many at all. Uh I mean it's is like, it it's is like fifteen. No. Is it ten? No.
1: Is it five?
2: I'm thinking I was thinking four.
1: Yeah. So I I believe it's around five.
2: Yeah, you're totally right.
1: Your average deck. That's what I think. Yeah. Optimized like very powerful decks and very very powerful decks might have zero to two
2: like I'm thinking of my optimized um Azuri deck yeah and it has things like Genesis wave when you go off with elves and so it has the potential to create tons of mana it doesn't
1: count though as a but like ten drop yeah
2: yeah but it doesn't it doesn't even have those those high casting spells that's crazy yeah yeah now that you now that you bring that home a lot of them don't even have six drops in them
1: the the worst it's it feels bad because we get into this format and one of the reasons we get in is with the sales pitch is you can play all these huge spells that you can't get away with playing in standard and stuff because the game the games just don't last long enough for you to do it you can play your army of the dams and you know that's the sound of huge spells going off and honestly like the more powerful your decks get the more you realize it's you can't it's not that you can't do any of those but. The ones you have in your deck have to be so good that they basically win, so you don't need that many of them.
2: Well, that might be that might be an argument for stopping somewhere along this continuum and not actually getting to optimized. Yeah,
1: yeah, and 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 definitely, I think that's a thing is um, is purposefully keeping your decks in a certain range so that you have them. And we've ta- we talked about before the show how like when you go to something like GP Vegas, I think people have the a really incorrect idea of what playing for fun EDH at a GP is like. They think it's like all spikes. That has not been my experience at all. Are there some CEDH players? For sure. Are most of the players competitive players? Not at all. You play against people with their Vorthos all white border deck, all misprint deck. I've played against both those decks. You play against a lot of people that are younger in age. Some people are basically like a pre-con with like three different cards in it. Somebody is playing, you know, there's this guy, um, On Twitter, his name's Bradley Rose. He plays a deck that has a theme, but he won't tell you what the theme is. As he's playing it, you're supposed to try and guess what the theme is, but the cards in the deck are not trying to win. They're trying to give you clues so you can guess what the theme of his deck is. You play against a ton of that stuff. It is not super spiky, and therefore, you need a big range of decks that you bring to GPs. Not big. You don't need 20 decks. You just need, you know,
2: I need 20 decks, Josh.
1: (laughs) You need five, but all the five can't be optimized. You need a a casual deck, a focused deck, an optimized deck. You need one in each place because you're going to sit down tables and you're going to be like, what level 1 to 10 are we at? And sometimes all three other people are going to say four. That's cool. You go, okay, good. I got my Tim deck right here. Although my deck's probably more like a five or six, so I, I got. Right. We'll talk about yeah. that a little bit later yeah. about about yeah.
2: power level and where to find your power level in your. Oh, I jumped the gun. Yeah, like we that. got three more yeah. points here. We still got. We still got to talk about how to bring your deck from focus to optimize. Right. Uh, I think one thing that you all actually need is more interaction. Sometimes decks are so hyper focused on doing their own thing that they almost ignore the rest of the table, and that interaction can actually be more specific. We mentioned in the other category that you want really general interaction. Here you can actually have very specific interaction because you can predict what will interrupt your game plan and also what other game plans could be at the table.
1: I think in general, just the, a big difference between focused decks and optimized decks is just amount of interaction too. When you first build a deck and everybody kind of falls in this pitfall where like your first version of the deck is so focused on its game plan because that's the part that you need to nail down that it just tends to have like, it'll have the throw ins.
2: Also, it's way more fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the fun Like, For example, you don't play magic because like, what are you going to do with your deck? I'm going to stop. I'm going to kill my opponent's stuff. You know that, you know, you go, I'm going to get out a lot of big creatures and I'm going to, you know, yeah, you're
2: gold fishing a deck and you're not excited about, uh, uh, I'll kill something this turn. You know, you don't even do do that in gold fishing. (laughs) You want to put, you want to put stuff on your battlefield and you want to swing things. You want to have great splashy spells and so a lot of beginning players don't have that interaction that you need. And so as you move from focus to optimize, you don't just need interaction. You need to make sure that you have the right interaction. And you can have more narrow interaction because you know a little bit more about what you're answering. Or at least
1: you know your weaknesses and what you're going to, you know, you may not need creature interaction because you're like, well, my answer to creatures is my main game plan. Yeah. And that may be totally fine. Um, I still think flexible answers are good. I think just more interaction in general, mm-hmm. like... Yeah, that's another deck building thing that has just happened to me over the years, which is like when I build V1 of a deck now, I have seven pieces of, you know, direct one for one uh, removal of yeah. some kind. You know,
2: Well, one example of this, this is as you move towards competitive, like a great card in competitive is Flusterstorm. Yeah. I don't think we would play that very often. Flusterstorm is one blue. It's counter target non-creature spell uh, and it has Storm. Uh, if uh, Sorry, counter-target creature spell unless you pay one. And then it has Storm. And so this is great in the competitive EDH uh, format because it answers what it needs to answer. But for us, do you even see it around? I've, I don't think I've ever seen it I've seen see it, it, it before, around.
1: but it's very rare because yeah. there just tends to be enough mana sitting around because not everybody's playing so efficiently. and in And c- it's
2: not answering another Storm card. It's yeah. answering...
1: A regular card. Or some of a regular card, yeah. And a CDH, a lot of times, like, if they get this one spell off, they're going to win, you know, on turn four.
2: And you need to... It needs to cost one mana, too. Your answer just costs one mana. The
1: margins are so tight that maybe they can even pay the one mana, but after they pay it, then they can't continue the rest of the chain. And so it's just way better. Whereas we're worried about just raw card advantage. Like, I play that, you pay the one mana. Who cares if it stopped the rest (laughs) of your play that turn? You weren't going to win that turn. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. And finally one thing that is mirrored in the thing before which is the mana base. Making your mana base better makes your deck better. But in this situation, tapped lands are awful. I
1: don't Yeah. They
2: are they okay, how about not awful? How about this? They are a serious disadvantage and you need to be very conscious of when you're including them.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's along the don't be greedy lines, right? I like to tell people in general, I like to have no more than thirty percent of my mana base come into you, like have to come into play tapped, um, so I'm okay with a few tap lands, but it can't be a lot because I don't want to be. I want to play the tap land on turn one or at the moment when I have a two drop and not a three drop, and it's turn three, and I can just drop that as the extra land. But I, I you can only do that like once or twice a game, and fit that in correctly. If you have a hand that's like one untapped land and three tap lands, you're in trouble because you're just gonna be behind that you're entire You're a turn game. behind. Yeah,
2: yeah, and being a turn behind when is- When the game is
1: gonna go 12 turns.
2: Exactly, is not very good at all. Yeah. And we talk about hitting points on the curve, and if you've paid attention to your curve, but your mana base has you a turn off.
1: Think <sighs> about the scenario where Deathrite Shaman, we're talking about, is is a really good card. It's an amazing card. If you have a Deathrite Shaman in your opening hand, and they're all tap lands, and now I gotta play my Deathrite Shaman on turn two, and my Signet on turn three, and like all of a sudden, all that work I've done to make my mana curve correct is putting me, you know, the tap lands are literally putting me a turn behind. And mm-hmm. so it just makes it like, almost like I didn't do the curve stuff or I did it wrong. Exactly. Yeah.
2: By the way, Josh, I like the way that you're mentioning Deathrite Shaman in this category specifically, because I think in a lot of normal EDH, Deathrite Shaman is a little bit mediocre. But when you can, when you know that your opponent or when you know that you have fetch lands, then suddenly Deathrite Shaman is, is a mana dork you can rely on. There are some tables, casual tables, where lands very rarely go to the graveyard. But you sit down at a certain optimized table and you know you will have food for your Deathrite Shaman.
1: Deathrite Shaman's so good. You should play it more. Not just the lands thing, the graveyard removal, period. Something that like...
2: That's the interaction that you're talking about. You need to have it. You need it all the
1: time. So it's covering you in two categories. It ramps you sometimes, It graveyard removal sometimes. Also, just the fact that it sometimes gains you life and deals damage to your opponent's it is enough gravy that like
2: for one mana,
1: for one mana, it's not even a one-one. Here's card one one. Here's broken. one thing though,
2: Josh. It's You say one mana, but it's not just one mana. It's a f- whole card. Right. And in many situations in the casual format, I mean, gr- we're quibbling here. Like I'm quibbling here a little bit, but that card could be a four mana card or something even a little bit more powerful.
1: Man, there ain't a lot of four-power cards more powerful than Deathrite
2: Shaman. But if Deathrite Shaman... Here's the thing. If Deathrite Shaman doesn't yeah, yeah, give you mana, it doesn't ramp you I think as reliably... Yeah, yeah. I think, I think in a casual deck, deck, Deathrite Shaman is not as good as many other mana dorks. Hmm. Or more reliable uh, graveyard interaction.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I think it's probably still better than most people think. I think it'll still great situations. There are entire decks that just can't beat Death Right Shaman, right? Like I played against Sean Main the other day and I got a Death Right Shaman out and his Marchesa deck, old school. <laughs> and he was just like, I can't beat that one card.
2: That one mana one card, to be, but but that's that's not that's Maren not at the cost of like that's, there's tons of them. But you're saying deathrite shaman and, and basically carrying it over to the entire disrupt your graveyard strategy because you need to. I'm not saying don't run any graveyard interaction. You should run your rest in pieces, your land. But I, those I personally don't like ramp
1: you sometimes, right. and they don't. Do I personally deals. like yeah.
2: lands that do this. Uh, that interact with the graveyard. I've been a big fan of is it scavenger grounds? Yeah, the desert that takes out uh, lands. Yeah, and Bajuka Bog is a classic.
1: Bajuka Bog's good, but it doesn't beat Marchesa in the same same way because you don't right, have to it totally play it in speed. Yeah. listen we're quibbling but i do believe that like this sounds like somebody saying to me well it's your play group and that's why death shaman's good no death right shaman's good you should probably be played and you're focused on your casual decks too and i guarantee that it'll be it'll way outperform what you think
2: josh and i might disagree on this but the thing is one important thing is that we've literally talked about it in different contexts yeah and that's the important part we didn't just yell at each other and say you're wrong and st- Stupid and ugly, too. We basically (laughs) said, We didn't (laughs) say that, Josh. We didn't say that. (laughs) <laughs> but literally we're breaking it down in different scenarios and we're going through uh, different different things in our minds, different situations, different types of decks. Notice he's bringing up uh, Marchesa, He's bringing up Marin. He's bringing up cards and commanders that he knows he's playing against. We're kind of actually breaking down how these cards work, not just in our decks, but against other decks against a potential meta. And that brings us into our next section where we talk about Tuning specifically for a metagame.
1: Man, Segway, man, showed up in a, such a huge way. That was impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Is I it less like...
2: impressive when you call attention to it? <laughs> yes. No, <I'm> yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it didn't call you ugly or whatever. <laughs>
2: it's okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll make it through this.
1: <laughs> okay. Yes. So, tuning to a metagame. Another thing we've done a couple episodes on. This is super important if you play with the same people all the time. I mean, it's something you 100 percent should do. And a healthy metagame is going to constantly shift. I change my deck, and that makes you change your deck, mm-hmm. and that makes another player change theirs. And there's this nice little sort of um, it's the it's an ebb and flow. It's the move counter move. It's the yeah. It's the moving the chess pieces around on the board to try try and like you know put your opponent in check, and then they move and they put you in check, and and that is actually really healthy.
2: On guard, touche. Yeah, yeah, post,
1: repost. Yeah, yeah exactly. You're a fencer?
2: No, not yeah, even close.
1: Me neither. Those are the only no. words connected to fencing that I know. Oh, lunge. That's another one. That's it.
2: Uh, so you can basically know what you're weak to, and this can work across all of the different strategies. But you, if you know what your opponents are doing and you know your meta game, you can sort of pre-sideboard, so you know what you're weak to. You know what disrupts them and you know what your deck is going to do. So include some cards that could disrupt counter strategies like uh Biseju, Cavern of Souls, Grand Abolisher, Dramoka, and you know, things like that.
1: Dramoka, Dragon Lord Dramoka. So good.
2: Ooh, so good.
1: Yeah. Um, All those permission decks are just like, ah, uh...
2: <laughs> Another card that I really like is uh um Red Elemental Blast and yep. uh Pyroblast because it counters those blue strategies. Uh, but it also it just destroys a blue permanent.
1: There's always going to be blue permanents. It is so good. Yeah. What's the last time you sat in a game with four players and there was no blue being being played? It's never happened in the history of Magic.
2: I'm a, I'm actually a big fan of of pre boarding, yeah. like and running those cards uh, right off the bat. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh no, that's what I'm saying.
2: Oh, Yeah. Yeah. It's you great. can
1: count on. I think you can count on certain things, and that's one of the things you can count on. There will be a blue deck.
2: Yeah. And right. if it, if
1: not. It's not the worst. there will be a blue
2: deck. So, by the way, if you're playing in a green deck, you should run Carpet of Flowers. I I think not enough people run this card. It's so good.
1: What is it again?
2: Oh, my gosh. Josh doesn't play this card enough. One green mana. Beautiful Rebecca Gay art. Just picture it, guys. You don't have to picture it. Craig is putting it up on the screen. (laughs) Okay. One green mana for an enchantment. Uh, You get to add to your mana pool any... Mana equal to the amount of Islands target opponent controls. Oh
1: yeah, 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 yeah. I and it fixes you too. It's this, in yeah. any color. Yeah, yeah.
2: So you, it's oftentimes better than a soul ring. Yeah. You put it down on turn Makes one, sense. and someone that has Islands out is like, all right, you just have a bunch of mana. It's great. And also one thing that's great is that it triggers on your main phases, so you can play it in your first main phase, and it will trigger immediately for your second main phase.
1: This card sounds insane. I think I've had people play it against before I've never played it but it it it, it creates a ton of mana so it seems good oh, man so there good. are people being like Josh don't play card doesn't play carpet of flowers you're see DJ comes on the show he's just outing me
2: it's good you should try. Here, no, but no. here's the thing that's I why that's why we have this conversation on just went Bruh.
1: is it an old card yeah it is it is an old card. I can card. picture the art actually because somebody has played it against me or somebody plays it it's in like one of their water nets. lilies it's gorgeous yeah yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. um. Other cards, oh, oh my gosh, next you hate this card? I love playing this card, Torpor Orb.
1: No ETBs happen anymore, everybody.
2: Sometimes this just shuts down decks.
1: Oh yeah, there's certain decks that can't beat this thing. And every deck plays Enter the Battlefield creatures because, well, they're following our play cards that do things now strategy. And mm-hmm. that's, a gr- that's, that's really why ETB creatures Enter the Battlefield effects on creatures are so good because something happens now and the creature's still there. So something happens now and something happens later.
2: Man, Torpor Orb, so good, and I don't think it sees enough play. It's a little mean.
1: I also think people are scared to run it because they're not sure that it's going to help them more than hurt them in a lot of decks. And so it shuts off so many decks that it also has the propensity to shut down your own deck and turn off your strategy. Yep. You can't have a lot of Android the Battlefield effects, although you do get, you do get to choose when to choose it. Yeah, you have a little it. bit of control over it. Yeah. I'm
2: fine. I have this in a deck that maybe has like four or five ETB creatures, yeah. and I feel like it's totally fine. And a lot of times you're shutting down way more than you actually think you are.
1: It's great. I should probably put it in the Vile Smasher Thrasios deck. It does not. You have... should try it out because it's great. No, I've played it before yeah. for sure. It's, yeah, I just, I dislike it when it happens to me so much that I find a hard time like <laughs> running it myself. It's like Blood Moon. Blood oh, Moon yeah. could go on this list.
2: Blood Moon could totally go Don't on this do list. Don't do that, everybody. Absolutely.
1: You want to keep your soul. Do it. Okay. No.
2: Uh, how about Null Rod? Sure. Just shut down artifact decks. Shut down mana rocks. Just... You basically, you put it in a situation where you're not relying heavily on mana rocks and everyone else is. And then suddenly just all of your mana rocks are just trash.
1: These cards are really good, but these Blood like cards are not. I guess I just don't play them much because I don't like to shut down people's decks in that way. Like I want them to play magic. So I'm happy with Vandal Blast, but because that just destroys everything right now, you can still play things from now on and get back in the game. But Null Rod can often feel like end Torpor Orb and feel like, oh, well, I'm just out of this. Like, I, I'm just going to be sitting here.
2: What we're doing here is Josh is talking about this social contract again. I'm not and telling anybody of, else. We're kind of flirting with that line where we're saying we're going to, like, sometimes people argue that stacks is, uh, is like, too, too mean. It, like, right. breaks the social contract. And in many situations, when we're playing cards that say you don't get to play magic. In many play groups, that's actually harming the social contract a little bit. And so we're kind of flirting with this line a little bit. And so we're not suggesting that you just automatically play all of these cards. We're we're consider it in your metagame. Yeah. It's in the metagame section. So consider how it works in your deck and with other decks.
1: I want to say too, I'm when I say things like that, that's my own personal thing. And I definitely am the type of player that does not get angry when somebody else plays an Ol'Rod. I just personally don't want to put that in my deck. Because I don't like to like make other people have that experience, but at the same time, like it never bothers me um, when people armageddon or anything is not even that big a deal to me. So I, I'm not telling people how they should play. I'm just like personally from my standpoint. No, Rod.
2: Eh. Yeah, totally.
1: All right, let's move on to sort of the last part of this topic, which is you can power up your deck. But sometimes, depending on your meta and the people you're playing with, you might want to power it down. And this is something we hear a lot, which is we get tons of messages from people that are like, I am killed first in every game by my playgroup all the time, and it's mostly because my I tend to win a lot if they don't do that. Or I got the reputation early on for building better decks, and the playgroup's response to that was, you know, kill me all the time. How do I tune down my decks but still have fun, right? Um, yeah. That's a tough question to answer
2: It's very tough because it's so related to your metagame. And that's why this is a good transition, because you want to make sure that your deck matches your metagame. Josh, you don't want to come with your optimized deck and play against the jank deck and just crush it. It's not fun for you.
1: It's not fun for them.
2: It's not fun for anyone. And so you want to make sure that your decks match your, your metagame. And sometimes that could mean taking down the power level just a little bit. And that could promote a healthy play group. Uh, another thing that could be good in terms of limiting the power level is this seventy-five percent discussion. Uh, basically, uh, that is a deck building idea by Jason Alt. By Jason Alt, that says, "Well, I want my deck to be around seventy-five percent, which means that it has the potential to beat a one hundred percent deck if I play tight and I'm lucky. But it also has the ability to play with other decks." Josh and I have a solution where we're just going to bring five decks. But it essentially accomplishes the same thing as Jason Alt's 75%, which is match the people around you so that you all have fun.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't just destroy the 50 and 60% decks, but at the same time, it doesn't just get destroyed by the 100% decks. It's an interesting theory. Um, I like to have decks at varying power levels, so I don't... don't people are always like, what about 75%? I'm like, yeah, it's great. I like it. Yeah, I you do have a 75%.
2: Do... It's this deck right here. Yeah, I don't. I also have a 50%. It's this deck yeah, right here.
1: Exactly. I don't follow it all the time. I'm not trying to have all my decks be at 75%. Do I have some? Of course. Yeah. Um. You know, by design. But, but people
2: that have fewer decks or want their one deck to be good in many different scenarios could really embrace the 75% mentality. And I think it's wonderful. Another thing that you can do is if you get bored with a deck, you mm-hmm. might want to tweak it or change the power level. Uh, I had a deck that just always won with Craterhoof Behemoth. Every single time. Just like, well, the right decision is to get Craterhoof Behemoth. Boom. Put put into play. And I found myself Huff. not wanting to play it. Yeah. Because it's just like I'm winning the exact same way every single time. It's boring. Yeah. And... How did I solve it? Well, I didn't just take out Craterhoof Behemoth. I actually reworked the deck, retuned it, bringing the power level down a little bit to win in a different way, to have more of a combination of creatures, a little bit of a slightly different strategy to win. And I found actually enjoying the synergy of the deck much more than the race to Craterhoof.
1: And the last point you put here was consider adding a hard mode win condition to your deck.
2: I like hard mode win conditions where you have a deck that you have a plan and then you're like, well, actually, I'm pretty far ahead. I think I want to have a hard mode win condition. I want to have this achievement unlocked. Like what? Uh, I personally like having, I have a combo deck with Riku, and it's got Kikijiki G- Kiki and Zealous Conscripts and Pestromite, and all of this great stuff and Palinchron and stuff like that. Yeah, except for when I decide to win with Biovisionary. <laughs> Where guy. I really I I okay I have to Kiki Jiki then I have to copy the Vio Visionary to have that token okay and then I have to make sure that I have this other card it yeah it basically becomes this puzzle it's- of putting together this hard mode win condition and that actually requires a bit of discipline mm-hmm. you have to be able to have the win in your hand and be like I'm actually not going to play this I'm going for the thing I want to do mm-hmm. and actually one other way to make this successful is to not uh, rub this in people's faces when you win. You don't just go like, yeah, my deck could have won a b- bunch of times, but I did this janky win. And you That's a really good
1: point. We we've, I've talked about many times on the show, like letting people have their fun, maybe not like just comboing off when you can if something's going on. If you don't do that last part, if you just let the game go and don't like be like, oh, I had this the whole time and I could have won. Well, then you didn't really do the thing, right? You didn't... You yeah, make, you didn't
2: do hard mode. Yeah, yeah you, you, just be,
1: tried to, you just tried to make people feel bad about it. That's not That's not really accomplishing what you want to accomplish. If you're going to let people have their fun, let them have their fun. And, you know, you, you chose to take a certain line and you didn't win that way. Don't, you know, don't come back later and be like, well, I could have.
2: Yeah, it has to do with alter, alternative win conditions. And sometimes people go in playing Commander saying, if I do this thing, this awesome Rube Goldberg machine... I have personally won.
1: Yeah, I'll feel like I have won. exactly.
2: I, uh, and you can insert that into decks and really enjoy yourself.
1: I, I mean, yeah, I like building an entire deck that way rather than sort of holding myself to that in the moment. So like the Tim deck is that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would build a deck, and the what I built it was like I will just I will kill people by pinging them with Tim. Now, are there combos in the deck that allow me to do that multiple times in a turn? Of course, because it's hard to do. Do
2: you ever ever hold back on the combo and be like, I like the way this game is playing right now. I want to win in a different way. I'm not just going to combo off right now.
1: Um, I'm sure I've done that with that deck. In general, I need six cards to do it. So by the time I can do it, the game probably should be ending and I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think it's different in... I've definitely have had decks where like the combo is easier to assemble. And if I get it together early, I might not do it. I might even just discard the card just so I it's, it's gone just to be like, okay, I'm just, I don't think the game is ready to be at that point where it's ending. If I end it now, people will go, uh
2: have you ever tutored for a suboptimal card because oh, you think it's fun or sure. that's the card you want to play with? See, that's another level of essentially tuning in the moment or yeah. adjusting the power level in the moment where you're like, I'm enjoying this deck. I'm enjoying my playgroup. I'm not, I'm even if I had the Crater Hoof in this deck, I'm not going to tutor for the Crater Hoof. I want to keep this going.
1: My favorite thing to do is to tutor for a card that is like the newest card I put in the deck mm. because I haven't tried it in the deck. And so that is sort of like R&D. It's like, I'm trying it out. When I, yeah, I could tutor for the combo piece or the thing that's the best thing, but I'm actually going to tutor for this card because I think it's good, but I don't know. And so this will be a chance for me to find out and at the same time not just end the game right now when maybe it's not ready to. So uh, yeah, you can tune down your play too, I suppose. Absolutely. Is how to think about that. Um, Okay, to the listeners, do you have a particular method for tuning your deck up or down, but mostly up? Do you... Wait, I
2: want to hear about how you tune your deck down. Josh wants to hear about how you tune your deck up.
1: Yeah, okay. (laughs) I'm I'm not a big believer in tuning down. I've done it before and I didn't like the outcome as far as like when I played. I'd rather just build a new deck that is, you know, sort of meant to be less powerful so that I'm playing the most powerful version of it that I've played, even mm-hmm. if that's not a very powerful thing on the continuum of jank to competitive.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm totally fine with cutting powerful cards and inserting packages that I find interesting, although less powerful. So it's more like I'm pursuing an interesting line or an interesting sort of collection of cards. So it's
1: sort of to each their own as far as like, cause like I said earlier, like uh, whatever you find fun, if you can, if you can, yeah, if you, if that's fun to you and you don't lament the idea that like, well, in the old build, I had this and this and I would do that, <laughs> then you that's, that's definitely what you should do. Okay. Now it's time for the end step where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic. It says, I'll have this planned, which means DJ has a plan for the end step.
2: Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I, I have a, I have some end steps like lined up. I this think is great be good. because I've had to yeah, do like, <laughs> you've had to do a lot of it. 150
1: end steps. of them or something. And I don't have a lot left. Although I have one for coming up. You and, have one coming up. Okay, yeah. good.
2: Um, so this particular end step was actually a moment that I felt uh, sort of really good because something, something bad happened earlier on. I'm a little bit of a foodie and Anthony Bourdain passed away. Mm. It was something really sad. And, I was looking forward to watching um, one of his specials on Netflix. And I was like, oh my gosh, it just went off Netflix. I missed it. It was supposed to go off Netflix uh, in the middle of the month. And then I realized that they paid the money and they're keeping it on for a little bit longer. And so if you're a fan of travel, of food, of people that are just really excellent writers, really great at explaining the world around them and really profoundly understanding different cultures and different people, Uh, I highly suggest uh, Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. That's a great book. It's a great, it really changes uh, my perspective on the food industry. It was really crazy. And then also Parts Unknown on Netflix and also his series on CNN. Like they just kind of wrapped up and and I don't know how you consume your television or whatever, but you can probably see some of that as well. There's
1: No Reservation. And then there's, what's the layover one?
2: Oh, I love that one.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, it's It's the layover, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, he, where he literally Anything spends 24 hours in he's something. Great. Yeah. Um, so it's really sad that he's not around anymore, but he's left us with so many good things. Uh, I think it's a good end step to kind of jump on that and be like, hey, this guy was awesome. Let's consume some of his great stuff.
1: I like the one where he goes to Singapore the most, or maybe the one where he goes to the Philippines. Those are two of my favorite. I've watched many of those episodes multiple times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the show's great. Another show that's great is the Masters of Modern Podcast. They're our sister podcast. They talk about the modern format, all things competitive magic. Alex Kessler and Ben Bateman are the hosts. You can find them on Twitter at the MMcast or right next to us at Collected.Company. I should also give a big shout-out to my substitute co-host here, DJ. If you go to Jumbo Commander on YouTube, you can find all kinds of deck techs and just basically tons of stuff about the Commander format. Um, you've, you've been growing a lot recently, so I'm sure a lot of you out there know about Jumbo Commander, but if you haven't tried it out, it's a really, I mean, honestly, like if you like the command zone, you're going to love DJ stuff too. So you should definitely go over
2: there. How complimentary, Josh. Thank you. Uh, our editor is Craig Blanchette, And special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer for the living card animations at Living Cards
1: MTG. This is an island from M19. Good job, Jeffrey. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.
2: Thanks, guys. Bye. Peace.